Good morning. I bet you're all pretty enthused about the fact that uh, this month is Pastor Appreciation Month. Did, did you know that? You didn't. Sorry to let the cat out of the bag. I read this week about a pastor uh, and uh, the church staff, and they asked if he wanted a $100 bill for a pastor appreciation. And he said yes. And so they took him out to dinner and uh, made him pick up the tab. <laughs> Pastor appreciation begins with laughing at his jokes. <laughs> uh, speaking of pastors, I also read this week that uh, a little piece about uh, 12 reasons why a pastor quit attending sporting events. And he gives them in the first person. One, uh, the coach never came to visit me. Two, every time I went, they asked me for money. Three, the people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly. Four, the seats were very hard. Five, the referees made a decision I didn't agree with. Six, I was sitting with hypocrites. They only came to see me, to see what others were wearing. Seven, some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. Eight, the band played some songs I had never heard before. Nine, the games were scheduled on my only days to sleep in and run errands. Ten, my parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Eleven, and these are still answering the question why a pastor quit attending sporting events. Eleven, uh, I read a book on sports, and I know more than the coaches anyway. Uh, I, Twelve, I don't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sport they like best. Well, a veiled allusion to why some people leave church, clearly. But, you know, when I think of sports and when I think of appreciation, I think uh, certainly Paul deserves appreciation, especially uh, as I read of how he has handled and uh, dealt with a very tough situation at the church of Corinth here in chapter 14. And he really deserves a high five, a high five, and that's for sure. We often uh, use the expression, give me five in sports. You ever heard that? Sure, give me five. It's a, it's a way of saying, good job, give me five. And then there's uh, also a call to take a break when people have been heartily, uh, you know, investing their very t hard efforts in something together and someone will say, good job, take five. Well, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says, give me five. 
And he does that in verse 19. Verse 19. He doesn't uh, speak of a high five uh, or take five, but he says, I'd rather give, have you give me five words that are edifying and plain and helpful than give me 10,000 words in a tongue. And that might help us remember that that's the thrust of chapter 14, is does it edify? Uh, give me five words that edify, that encourage, that build up, that strengthen. That's better than thousands of words that don't. And that's really his emphasis. The situation in Romans, I mean in 1 Corinthians 14, is uh, a little dicey, and we can kind of get an idea if we look at chapter 14, verses 26 through 32, and I'd like to read that. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up or edifying others, one another. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret or let him or her interpret would be actually more precise. But if there is no one to interpret, uh, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. And then this, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What Paul is recommending is a fix. Uh, manners and an orderly pattern that they can follow that should displace what has been disruptive, a discordant, maybe even a bit chaotic. And you get bits and pieces of that throughout the chapter. But as uh, you read even what he prescribes, you can infer from the prescription that he's addressing some things that are just the opposite of that. And it gives you a feel of uh, what really is uh, kind of out of hand and disruptive. It's a far cry from what we ourselves experience. And so Paul says, give me five. Just, I would rather have five words that edify than 10,000 words in a tongue. And yet Paul spoke in tongues, verse 18, more than all of them, he says. In other words, he engaged in private in the gift of tongue speaking, which was very enriching to him. And in verse 5, he thought it a blessing if everyone, all of us, had the gift and were able to speak in tongues. But he says, just as I would have all of you speak in tongues, I would rather or moreover have all of you 
speak words of prophecy or to engage in the gift of prophecy. And so he goes on to say the person who prophesies is of greater importance than the one who speaks in tongues unless the person who speaks in tongues puts into plain words his or her utterance so that the church, the congregation, the assembly can receive edification and building up. And in fact, verse 13, he says that's a good thing if the person who speaks in tongues will make plain what has been uttered from the depths of their spirit and heart. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. You might think, um, what's any of this have to do with me? Because I gotta tell you, their situation is very different than ours today. In fact, I came to Christ in 1972, and I've been involved in worship within the church since that time, and in all of those worship experiences, I've never encountered any of what is pictured here in 1 Corinthians 14 in Paul's descriptions. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen or that you haven't experienced it, but it's rare and it's not commonplace. And so some of us might think, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, one thing that is very important, I hope it will engage your thinking and heart today, is that Paul proposes that all prophesy. And throughout this chapter, it is an emphasis of his. In fact, as we think about prophecy, I want you to pay attention, and I think you'll learn something about some, something in which the Spirit may engage you in with other believers, in the assembly, in small groups, uh, in one-on-one -on -one help, care for a friend in a time of need. Um, the situations are manifold. Verse 3 gives us an insight. Uh, let me read verses 1 through 5. Paul begins following chapter 13, which is an emphasis on love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to people or men, but it's generic, but to God. For no one understands the person speaking in tongues, but he or she utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement or exhortation and consolation or comfort. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself or herself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless the one who speaks in tongues interprets what he or she has uttered so that the church may be built up. So he gives us some insights into what it means to prophesy. It speaks to people. 
primarily. It is for their edification, verse 3. Verse 6 shows us that prophecy brings to light that which is spiritually useful, beneficial, or helpful. In fact, just as in verse 3 where it encourages and exhorts and comforts and consoles, in verses 24 and 25, it is prophecy which appeals to the heart and so speaks to both believers and unbelievers in a way that touches and reveals and discloses the heart. And as he says in verse 31, from prophecy all may learn and be encouraged. In verse 6, Paul groups prophecy with revelation or a disclosure of some kind. With knowledge and with teaching, all of which are people-oriented and of benefit or use and help. Prophecy does not, from anything Paul says, appear to come from a sudden flash of inspiration as if we suddenly knew something that before we couldn't even imagine. In fact, as I said throughout this chapter, Paul proposes all God's people can exercise prophecy. In verse 39, which I alluded to a moment ago, basically speaking to brothers and sisters, he says, earnestly desire to prophesy, which echoes the very opening of what he says on the whole subject of their gatherings. When he says, pursue love and earnestly seek the spiritual gifts, especially that you prophesy. That is a big all in verse 1. And it squares with verse 5 where he speaks, I wish you all or I want you all to speak in tongues. That would be a blessing, but more than that, that you all prophesy. Very important to see this. There are no distinctions that he makes. I think we can begin to get a picture or a glimpse of what prophecy might really look like on the ground, so to speak. Here in this very chapter, in verses 21 through 25, Paul twice quotes Isaiah. First, from chapter 28. He is applying the prophecy of chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, to the issue of tongues and prophecy. And in that case, he draws out of the past, out of the prophetic word to Israel and their experience, the issue of when God expressed through the prophet to Israel his disfavor at their refusal to believe him. And so a warning is cast upon them and it's going to be in part uh, imagined as the prophet presents it in the babbling of foreigners God will speak his disfavor and judgment but when they know that when they experience that, 
in their hardness of heart and their rebellion, they will realize how far they have drifted and that it has happened because of their obdurate disbelief. Well, Paul says that if all of the Christians, if all of the Corinthians are speaking in tongues, this tongues which is a sign to the obdurate disbeliever who refuses to obey God, he says if an outsider or an unbeliever comes in and you're all speaking in tongues, the person will be repelled. But he says if you are all prophesying, now that probably doesn't mean all speaking at once, but in some cases they were all speaking or speaking out of turn as he has to impose those manners and courtesy upon them. But he says if you're all prophesying, then he says, then he says um, that he will be uh, the secrets of, of the unbeliever's heart or the outsider's heart who is drawn into the assembly, not a hardened disbeliever who doesn't want to believe God, but who is drawn in. Prophecy will reveal the secrets of his heart. And then Paul, in verse 25, draws upon a favorite passage of his from Isaiah 45, where the prophet pictures the pagan nations who realize that in Israel the one true God and the only true God resides and falls on his knees and in his words convicts him, calls him to account and discloses the secrets of his heart. Now, what I want to help us appreciate is as with many parts of Isaiah and many parts of Scripture, Paul sees God's word fulfilled in his own day because of Jesus coming, because Jesus is the expected Messiah now here, now arrived, now come. Paul is after all, quoting here two passages of prophecy in his own discussion about prophecy. And I think it's likely that this passage is itself a sample of what Paul has in mind when he is talking about prophecy within the church within the experience of the church, within the assembly, within the worship service. I think this is a clue to one feature of what Paul means by prophecy. And if it is, we can imagine how it might come about through prayer, reflection, and spiritually creative thought about the way in which God's purposes in Scripture have been fulfilled in Jesus Certainly Paul and other Christian prophets of their day would offer fresh interpretations of Scripture and apply previously unimagined insights in the life of the church. I think that helps us to get a kind of on-the-ground, real-time, real-life kind of picture about the way 
this gift of prophecy can work. And I can understand it. I see it, I think, I've witnessed it, I think, even within small groups. A lot of our small groups are more kind of like or akin to the, the church gatherings and assemblies uh, of the Corinthians of that time in which they would gather and someone would have a prayer and a praise and a thanksgiving and a prophecy and a word of knowledge. I think prophecy can be at work when one person attends to the specific concerns or maybe heavy-heartedness or uh, comes for counsel in a difficult uh, situation. And that person who has the word of prophecy is a person who's steeped in the word, wise experience in the Lord, in the light of Jesus Christ, offering uh, direction, uh, application, uh, in, the, in the light of the culture, explaining things that reflects the whole new day and way in which we see this world through Christ, through God's Word, and through His will. And those promptings and those opportunities and those insights, they aren't all just spontaneous. Spontaneous does not mean spiritual. They can be forged out of experience over time and sometimes, of course, come about because of a new set of circumstances in which uh, they apply and give help. Certainly the ministry uh, of prophecy is needed in our church and churches and has been at work over many, many years uh, connecting the practical, uh, social, and cultural issues that face the church with deep theological truths and the working of the Holy Spirit. So, Paul says, give me five. Give me five words of prophecy rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. And he wants them to be clearly meaningful. And he wants them also to be others-minded. And we see this in verses 13 through 25. Let me read them to you. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For, and here Paul speaks autobiographically and gives us an insight into his own experience with speaking in tongues. He who speaks more in that gift of tongues than others. He says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others. 
Paul really does give us a beautiful picture of tongues. And perhaps you have known lovely, wonderful, some of dear friends in Christ over the years speak in tongues. But I have never witnessed them speak in tongues. Tongues, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, and by the way, what we literally translate tongues is the word tongues. But you need to know that the word tongues is generally translated languages. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, where Paul commences in talking about the priority and importance of love, he speaks of languages of men or people, human languages, and angelic angel languages. I think he is applying what he says here of tongues to what he would also refer to as angelic languages because, as he said back in verse 2, they are languages that are uttered unto God. And what I want us to appreciate, and we draw some wisdom and insight here from what we've just read of what Paul says, is that there are occasions where some people, and sometimes I experience this when we're worshiping together in song, and um, as Paul said, we're already praying these lyrics unto you, Lord. Those are precious things. Sometimes it just so moves me, I, I want to move with it in some way. I don't know if you ever feel that way. Um, some people have different learning styles. Uh, I'm certainly a more rational guy, but the longer I live and the more I experience, uh, the, I, I, I feel things increasingly deeply and richly and sometimes the truths of God or what I see God do in a certain moment or there's a witness of what is happening around me or with God's people in such a profound way that I just I just feel like I want to burst inside it's out of the depths of that spirit Paul says referring to the human spirit that there is this expression, this adoration, this exaltation, this praise unto the Lord that comes out in, in sounds and syllables that is just gushing forth. It's like a love language unto God. That's what Paul is talking about here. And yet, it is inarticulate. It is unintelligible to others. They cannot understand what is being uttered. And so Paul says, it is, it, it, 10,000 words wouldn't add up to five. Unless you can put into plain language what you are uttering, what those syllables and sounds mean. And he says in verse 13 expressly, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he or she may interpret. But if not, then it needs to be kept private. Like private wealth, when it's put on display, it can often result uh, in a show of wealth, a show of special ability of some kind or prestige. 
And in a similar way, uh, Paul wants this to be a private thing because it does not edify those who cannot understand what is being said. Give me five. Make it others-minded, as Paul emphasizes in actually in all of verses 13 through 25. But then he says, make it well-mannered. Make it courteous. And I, maybe he had some of this in mind when he wrote chapter 13, because in verses 4 through 6, when you think of, of some of the things that might have been going on, he says, love is well-mannered, respectful, courteous. Not only in life, but it would apply to worship too. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so for all of the issues and disruptions that occurred in the relatively small house churches of Corinth, that would gather for worship, there are many indications of beautiful mutual interaction, worship, and fellowship in this chapter. And uh, we can experience these same kinds of interactive worship in our small groups where, like I said, there is prayer and praise and thanksgiving and revelation and knowledge and prophecy and teaching, all for the benefit and building up of one another. For many, this encouraging uh, section in verses 26 through 33 would just end so beautifully if it weren't for verses 34 and 35. And I would like to try and rectify that. It's in verses 34 and, uh, 34 and 35 that the command for women to keep silent in the assemblies are uh, given and they are notoriously difficult. For example, in some manuscripts, verse 34 and 35 don't occur where we find them in our 14th chapter. They, they don't occur at verse 34 and 35 in some manuscripts. They are tacked on at the very end, kind of like an appendix. Um, the verses, for another reason, seem uh, difficult and, and perhaps out of place to some uh, because Paul assumes in chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, that women do and are expected to speak in the church. They are expected to pray and prophesy. Many serious scholars have concluded that these verses were not by Paul and were added by a scribe. Uh, what often would happen would be as a scribe was copying, and we have examples of this, sometimes they would make what's called a gloss in the margin. Sometimes what they were trans transcribing or uh, copying, uh, they thought was wrong, so they'd make, maybe make a marginal note of some kind, and then another scribe would come along and see that, and those confusions are all sorted out. I don't want to raise any reservations about. But when it comes to a difficult passage, sometimes those kinds of things where they are at play, they enter into the subject matter. And some think that perhaps a scribe uh, wrote this himself and not Paul. Uh, a scribe that was anxious to keep public worship a matter of male leadership only. That could be the case, although 
Equally wise and learned people have concluded that Paul really did write the passage and it belongs right where it is. And that's what I think. If Paul wrote this, as I on balance am inclined to believe, what can he have meant by it? That's the most important question. And he clearly doesn't mean that no women must speak during worship. In chapter 11, we saw this when we were in chapter 11, uh, verse 5, verse 10, he clearly assumes that women will take leadership roles and in praying and prophesying just as much as men will. And I simply don't think Paul has an agenda about keeping women suppressed in the church. What we do have to figure out is what the possible situation or scenarios might be that explain what is written by Paul here in 34 and 35. First, uh, let me just point out that in verse 33 and in verse 40, Paul appeals to the God that we worship, a God of peace, not of confusion or chaos. That's important. They border the disputed verses. More importantly, women did not participate in prayer and prophecy uh, within the church. Uh, I, did I say did not? I'm sorry, women did participate in prayer and prophecy within the church. I mentioned verse 5 and verse 10 of chapter 11, but look at verse 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 14. What he's talking about with respect to tongues and what he's talking about with respect to prophecy is applied to all, men and women. The fact shows that verses 34 and 35 of this chapter cannot be a general, absolute, timeless prohibition on women speaking, praying, or prophesying in the assembly or gathering of the church. What I think is more fruitful is to imagine a situation in which Paul would address this situation this way. It's important if you imagine this scenario to understand that in that ancient context, women and men were segregated. Men would often worship on one side and women the other. This would be true in the synagogue and in many religious uh, uh, forms of worship, pagan as well as Jewish. It's possible, likely, and probable that that's the case at Corinth. Second, they spoke the common Greek language. Corinth was a Roman colony, but they spoke Greek, but there were many dialects. And it's quite possible that when Paul talks uh, about, as he does in verse 29, the congregation should, uh, as he says, reflect on what a prophet said and evaluate it, it's possible to understand uh, some women who may not understand what has been said because of dialect issues, maybe on their side of that division, they start to talk about talk among themselves. Um, more importantly, uh, it's very possible that some women would talk across the aisle to their husbands, which brings us specifically to Paul's solution 
for the problem and why I think the problem is specifically having to do with, with uh, wives who perhaps because of dialect problems, maybe not understanding, being on that side of the aisle, or maybe uh, when it's time to reflect on what was prophesied, to evaluate it, um, maybe some wives were even prompted to address their own husbands who had said um, the prophecy, and in that way, perhaps, spoken a little too personally or sharply. The key to understanding this is that disruptive questioning was considered a disgrace in Paul's day in which it was widely believed that it was morally indiscreet for any wife to say anything on any subject in public. And that just seems astonishing to us. But my reading of Plutarch, who was a contemporary statesman of Paul, just give me a quick excerpt. He says, uh, it's virtuous for women to keep to the home and keep silence, for a woman ought to do her talking either to her husband or through her husband. And she should not feel aggrieved if, like the flute player, she makes a more impressive sound through a tongue not her own, that is, her husband's. Or again, after telling the story of Theano, the wife of the philosopher Pythagoras, she, in putting on her cloak, exposed just a portion of her arm, and a nearby admirer exclaimed, lovely arm. And she snapped, but not for the public. And then Plutarch adds to that story, not only the arm, of the virtuous woman, but her speech as well ought to be not for the public, and she ought to be modest and guarded about saying anything in the hearing of outsiders, since it is an exposure of herself, for in her talk can be seen her feelings, character, and disposition, and that was considered to be something that should be private to the family and the husband. What's as Sarah Rudin, a classicist uh, expert in Greco-Roman literature, culture of the time, says, this passage about Paul, of Paul here, what should surprise us is, is, is not that women are asked to be silent. What should surprise us is that they are given the opportunity to speak and expected to ask even questions. She says, in effect, it would be highly unusual in other situations for women to have a voice as it's understood women would have voices within the Christian congregation and assembly. And so it is important for us to understand that Paul's specific instruction is to the husbands of the wives who have obviously been disruptive on some occasions, and it should be remembered that this is not the only time Paul tells people to be silent. It's the third time, and throughout the passage, they are being asked to conduct and manage themselves in a manner in which some occasions call for silence. Note verse 26 expects everyone to participate. And notice 
in verse 28, 30, as well as 34, there are calls to silence, although some translations do not translate the word, but it is the same word indeed. Well, I've had to kind of press through some things that I really wanted to explain to you, um, and I hope that it will help you to better understand, uh, be more aware and appreciative of the fact that as you grow and pursue spiritual things and, and, the, and the work of the Spirit in your life, which is to be an everyday experience and reality in your life, and as you grow in Christ in your knowledge of Him and His Word, um, it is not at all unusual uh, for you to understand your role as prophesying within the body of Christ. And I think if you took that seriously and considered it on the strength of, of God's Word, uh, it would make you aware of the responsibility that we have, as well as the privilege and the divine appointments uh, that may be ours in Christ to minister to others. I, that's most important. And to be engaged within the body of Christ, it's meant to be. Will you stand with me? Let me close in prayer for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. and It's, it's so revealing and encouraging to be connected in this way with believers of another time who knew you as we do. And Father, with the same Spirit and same Son, same access unto you, we want to serve you in the Spirit's power, in your power, your resurrection power in our lives, that we might live the lives of the Messiah's people to show the world and to minister and reach the world for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, God bless you.